right, uh, take out your notes. Last week, uh, we're, we're in the second chapter of the notes on theology and apologetics. How does our theology dictate how we do apologetics? And we kind of jumped around a little bit last week. Uh, we started by putting a great deal of emphasis on, on the, the idea that because of who God is, uh, he cannot be held to some standard outside himself as a criteria for accepting or rejecting his validity. That was a, it's a big point. We're going to see over and over again how that comes up. We're going to see that again um, tonight in a different way. A lot of these things that we're going to look at, we're, we're going to kind of pick them up and look at them from different angles um, and hopefully in so doing get, get a fuller picture, a better understanding. And then we started talking about um, the nature of the unbeliever. We talk, so we talked about the God we're seeking to defend, then we started talking about the unbeliever to whom we're defending God. And we said that the unbeliever inescapably knows God through two avenues primarily, through nature around him and through the fact that he himself is an image bearer of God. So the knowledge of God is inescapable. Uh, and then we, we saw in Romans 1 what the unbeliever is seeking to do is to suppress the truth of God. And so a lot of our task in apologetics is getting him to um, acknowledge the truth that he's suppressing. All right? If you look at page 15 of the notes, kind of picking up where we were last week, I have a plan. We, we will cover all of this chapter. We're just going to cover it in a really weird order. Um, the, the, the order of my notes probably made sense to me when I wrote them, but they're making more sense to me this way this time. So uh, picking up at point C, I think is, is where we had left off. Depravity in the whole person. So the unbeliever is, is an image bearer of God, and I say this here, uh, there are two opposing dangers in the consideration of the image of God and the unbeliever. The first is to assume a sort of unblemished aspect to all people. That is, because man is the image of God, he is able to think rationally, make wise decisions, or appreciate true beauty on his own. Um, however, such a conception of man ignores the fact of the fall and its impact on the lives of all of Adam's descendants. Every part of man's being is affected by sin. If you're familiar with theology, this is the concept of what we call total depravity. Okay, total depravity does not mean that every unbeliever is as bad as he possibly can be. What it does mean is that there is no element of the unbeliever, no part of his life, no part of his being that is untouched by sin. Right? It's not as though... Okay, so here is, here's a common, I, I think a fairly common misconception. It's not as though... Okay, I'll, I'll back up and, and state it positively. We said last week, the unbeliever's primary problem is that he hates God, right? His, his objection to God is primarily moral. Now, when we're, we're doing apologetics, we're defending God on what grounds? Not, not moral grounds, but what grounds? What, what way are we seeking to defend God? By what means? Broad category. Rationality. Right? We're trying to present a rational defense for God. But we've already said here, the unbeliever's primary problem isn't rationality. It's not, the, the unbeliever is not denying that God exists 
in a, in a purely intellectual, rational, mental way, his opposition to God is rooted in his antagonism to God. It's a moral concern. So here's the misperception. Um, the misperception would be that the unbeliever is morally opposed to God, but rationally he's a clear thinker, and if I could just present him the evidence, he'd come around. What total depravity teaches us, what scripture teaches us about the unbeliever, is that every part of his being, including his mind, uh, is affected by sin. Uh, so I say here, man is not only morally amiss, Sin has deleterious effects on his cognition, affections, and even his body. Um, I say here, the negative effect of sin on the mind is called the noetic effects of sin. The noetic effects of sin, from the Greek term nous. Um, that first letter looks like a V, it's actually an N. Um, it's what the Greek letter N looks like, nous, meaning mind. Uh, while most Orthodox Christians accept that the unbeliever is morally corrupt, many throughout history have attempted to hold to the inherent purity of man's mind. This counters the evidence of Scripture. So, for instance, a very familiar verse, and it's repeated for us uh, uh, multiple times. Uh, Psalm 14, verse 1, Psalm 53, verse 1, say exactly the same thing. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Now, I've taken Hebrew. I'm not an expert on Hebrew. Okay, I'll, I'll acknowledge that uh, right up front, but by any stretch, um, Hebrew and I didn't get along particularly well. Hebrew kind of beat me up a bit. Um, I've heard sermons preached. If you have a, if you have a King James Bible, you'll see in Psalm 14:1 it will say, "The fool has said in his heart, there is no God, and there is will be in italics." Now. In the King James Bible, when you see words in italics, that doesn't mean they're emphasized. It, it's, it's the translator's way of saying, we've inserted these words to make sense of the text, but there isn't a corresponding word in the original text. Okay, that's what the italics means in the, in the King James. And so I've heard sermons preached from the King James that say, this verse would be better understood without those words, right? The fool has said in his heart, no, God, it's a statement of rebellion. Uh, the reality is the King James translators were right to put those words in there, which is why you'll see them in every other modern English translation. Well, the verse means exactly what the King James and what any modern version says. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. And while there's a moral component to what he's doing there, that is an intellectual statement. Right? He is making, I, I say this here, an ontological statement, a statement about God's being. He is saying God doesn't exist. Um, turn to Ephesians. I, I want to look at a passage that lays this out uh, explicitly. Ephesians, I believe, chapter 4. So we're considering the concept... Um, the effects of sin on the mind. Sorry, Ephesians. Uh, look at chapter 4, verse 17. We're not going to exegete this whole thing, but I just want you to see one point of emphasis from the Apostle Paul. He says, So I tell you this, and insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do. Now, notice how he describes the Gentiles, in the futility of their what? Thinking. 
They are darkened in their understanding, separated in the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of their hearts. And hearts is an all-encompassing word in Scripture, not only the seat of your emotions, but also of your thinking. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality and to indulge in every kind of impurity with a continual lust for more. You see this emphasis repeatedly in, in the Apostle Paul that one of the characteristics of <coughs> unbelief is, is an intellectual problem. It's a, it's a mental um, issue, not merely a moral issue. Okay? So the, the unbeliever twists truth. That's, that's the essence of this whole thing. When we talk about the noetic effects of sin, uh, that, that we have to go into the apologetic uh, encounter recognizing that the unbeliever is morally opposed to God, but he's also intellectually opposed to God. His rationality is not neutral. Okay, that's, that's the point of all that. Um, so I say here, furthermore, the claim that God does not exist or that... Uh, a God that is not the God of the Bible does exist. Okay, the language is, I worded that poorly. If one person says, God doesn't exist, he's an atheist. Or if he says, there is a God other than the God of the Bible who does exist. And either one of those claims are equally unbiblical. Okay, and so for our purposes, they're interchangeable. That's not a claim that can be made in isolation from other truth claims. Van Chilt rightly refers to God as the all-conditioner. Okay, that's an important term. And it's kind of an odd term when you first look at it. The all-conditioner. It, it does sound like a hair care product, right? <laughs> the all-conditioner. That's not what Van Chilt had in mind. What Van Chilt is saying is God is such a being that if he exists, his existence um, has impact on every other truth in the universe. Right? If God exists, I'm standing here because God exists. If God doesn't exist, I could stand here whether or not God exists. Okay? Uh, but, but what can't be true is that God exists and my standing here is really unrelated to that. Um, so God's existence conditions every other truth. So I say here, his point is that every other fact in the universe is what it is by virtue of its relationship to God. Really what we talked about the other night. I'm standing here ultimately because God knows I'm standing here. Which is equivalent to saying I'm standing here because God has ordained that I'm standing here. Um, uh, so, my being here is, is, is what it is by virtue of its relationship to God. That God has revealed himself in this way, right? We talk about natural revelation, general revelation. The reality is, if we're thinking clearly about this, what in the universe counts as natural revelation? And the answer is, everything, right? It is all what God has ordained. Um, is that so? That means it is only ultimately intelligible from within that Christian framework, right? Um, it, if the universe is what the Bible claims it to be, it can only be understood from within a Christian theistic framework. You take that one, that one piece out, and, and it doesn't make any sense anymore. And we're going to see that's exactly the problem. 
I say, to deny God's existence, then, is to reject a fact that is essential to the correct understanding of any other fact in the entire universe. The implication of this is quite startling. Given the unbeliever's foundation that God does not exist, he cannot think accurately about any fact in the universe. Because one aspect of knowledge is true belief, it would follow that the unbeliever knows nothing at all. And I say here, however, this seems extreme, right? That does seem like a very extreme statement. So, for instance, there's a, a Christian philosopher by the name of Alvin Plantinga, whose work I like quite a bit. And he has this, this three-volume set on what he calls warrant. And I won't bore you with the philosophy behind all of that. But warrant, warrant, and warrant the current debate warranted true belief and uh, whatever, three volume set. Massive, lots of pages. He mentions Van Til once in, in all of those pages merely to say Van Til believes that the unbeliever on his own worldview can't know anything that's ridiculous. We can disregard Van Til. Okay, <laughs> that's the only mention Van Til gets in this whole book. The whole three books. Irritates me. But, Van Til does seem to be making an extreme statement here, right? I mean, and, and this is what Plantinga says is any position that would, would entail that Einstein didn't know anything seems to be a, a rather ridiculous position right at the outset. And, and, and there's a sense in which that makes sense to us. So I say here, common grace is restraint. One could also overstate the effects of depravity on God's image. It is an inaccurate description of total depravity to say that man is corrupt as he could be. I already mentioned that. The theological basis for the assertion that man is not as corrupt as he could be is common grace. Common grace must be distinguished from saving grace. By common grace, the unbeliever is not empowered to do works that are acceptable before God. Common grace is a restraint put on the unbeliever preventing him from being fully successful in his pursuit of suppressing the truth. It's a restraint on his depravity, right? Now, this is a theological concept. You won't find the term common grace in Scripture, but I think it is a concept warranted by Scripture. The idea is this. The unbeliever left to himself would pursue an absolutely self-destructive path of depravity. But, but the reality is, we look at our world around us today, and we see that most people aren't just, in, in, in a very literal sense, hell-bent on their own destruction, right? We see most people aren't to that degree. We, you know, we look at our coworkers and we go, wow, that guy's making really bad choices. He's making a mess of his life. But he could be doing worse, right? He does show up to work sometimes, right? You know, uh, he does show up to work. He does uh, seem to take care of certain things in his life. Um, you know, he, he drove into work and didn't run all the other cars on 696 off the road. You know, that, these are elements of common grace. God has, by his spirit, restrained that unbeliever's expression of his own depravity. Does he kind of like the farmer who is an unbeliever, the rain falls on the just yeah. and the unjust. Yeah, I, I think that's exactly it. It's a show of God's kindness, even to the unbeliever. And, 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 and in some ways, okay, this is going to get really abstract here, but I, I think this may make sense. Uh, Van Til has a book called Common Grace in the Gospel. There's a big debate during his life as to whether common grace existed. There were uh, groups of Dutch theologians who, who really 
or at least bordering on a form of hyper-Calvinism, uh, who deny the existence of common grace. That their, their point is that God has ordained who's, who is going to be saved, and God never shows any kindness whatsoever to the non-elect. Okay, that was their position. And then Till said, no, that's not true. And, and what he argued, okay, this is, like I said, this is a bit abstract, but I don't think it's too difficult, that, that unless God extends common grace to the non-elect, there is no basis for the existence of time. Okay, like, whoa, okay, that's weird. The, the reason would be this. If God just dealt with the, the elect and the non-elect as he knows them from the beginning of time and he just treats them as... Does God know the outcome of it all already? He does. But, but the, the fact that God allows this to play out, the fact that we're sitting in a, in a room or, or that you know, there are unbelievers living lives around us, common grace is actually the, the, the basis of the existence of the reality of time. And I think that's true. I think that's true. So it's, it's a restraint on the unbeliever's depravity. Um, again, I say, uh, it, he's not empowered to do works that are acceptable before God, right? The unbeliever cannot do anything that is righteous in a meritorious sense in God's sight. Um but it prevents him from being fully successful in his pursuit of suppressing the truth because the knowledge of God is inescapable and because the unbeliever hates God, the natural response of the unbeliever to the realization that he himself is the image of God is suicide. In other words, left to himself. The unbeliever hates God. The unbeliever can't look at himself without seeing God. I would argue that without common grace, the, the, the only option open to the unbeliever is to kill himself, to try to escape the knowledge of God. Uh, a less extreme response is, is the attempt to destroy all vestiges of truth, order, beauty, and goodness, either by acts of violence or intellectual denials that such things are so. But as the unbeliever tries to remove it, uh, from himself knowledge, um, I'm sorry, as, as much as the unbeliever tries to remove himself from the knowledge sentence doesn't make sense. Uh, probably that second from doesn't belong there, right? Uh, but as much as the unbeliever tries to remove from himself uh, the knowledge, uh, God in common grace frustrates the unbeliever's plans. Thus the unbeliever is in an awkward state, one that is difficult to fully articulate. He does good, but not ultimately good. He knows truth, but not in the right way. So let me explain what I mean by this. This is a very, very difficult concept. In fact, it's probably what I'm going to write my doctoral dissertation on. Um, I'll, I'll paraphrase what I'm going to do in the next section so I don't have to read it all. So here's, here's a question. Uh, can the unbeliever do anything that is good? Trick question. And the answer is... You mean just good, not... It's a trick question. Oh. Don't clarify, it's a trick question. <laughs> Can the unbeliever do what's good? Yes. And the answer is yes, but there's another sense that the answer is what? No. 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 Okay. What is the sense that the answer is no? Not in the eyes of He can never do anything that is meritorious in God's sight. Yeah, that, that, that earns him any favor in God's sight, right? That, that, that it's not meritorious in that sense. But 
Um, does God look at all unbelief as equally corrupt? And the answer throughout Scripture is no, right? So, for instance, um, one of the reasons, and I don't want to get into this whole, whole issue right now because it is fairly involved, but when God sends the Israelites into Canaan and tells them to wipe out every Canaanite, one of the reasons that God says that is that their corruption has been filled up. Right? And, and so God looks at different kinds of unbelief and different expressions of unbelief as, as differing levels of corruption. Um, uh, you know, here, here's one that, that will mess with you if you, if you think about it much. Uh, Romans 13, Paul tells us to submit to human government because it's been ordained by God. What human government is Paul likely talking about in his experience in Romans 13? Probably Nero. He's probably talking about Nero. I don't care what you think of Barack Obama, he's not Nero. Okay? So God is telling us that orderly society isn't, is something from his hand. That's common grace. Right? That's not saving grace. I'm not saved because of government. But there's an orderliness to life. There's, there's a goodness in that that is from God's hand. It's a restraint. But none of that is ultimately meritorious. It's real. It's good. You know, when, when the unbelieving Boy Scout helps the little old lady across the street, he's done something good, but not ultimately good. I think the unbeliever's knowledge situation is the same way. Okay, if, we want to, if we want to trace out the parable. So here's the question. Can the unbeliever know anything? And I'm going to suggest to you the answer is, from God's point of view, no. Right? Because when he says, my car's out in the parking lot, in his mind, that is a thing that is true apart from God. The reality is, that isn't true apart from God. His belief is actually false because of the context of beliefs in which it is set. But does he find his car out in the parking lot? He, he does. So there's a sense in which he knows but doesn't know. Just as there's a sense that he does good but doesn't do good. Now, does that make sense? And the answer is a little bit. <laughs> Not entirely, okay? It's difficult. I acknowledge it's difficult. But, but this is the, the very problem we're going to have going into apologetic encounters, right? The unbeliever uh, is, is claiming to be rational, but his rationality and irrationality are very tightly intermixed with one another. He borrows from my worldview and common grace. The question is, Am I going to take what he's borrowed from my worldview and try to build on it? And I would argue that's evidentialism. What I'm going to try to do is show he can't borrow from my worldview on his worldview. If he's going to go on his worldview, he needs to be consistent. If he's going to be consistent, he's going to destroy all knowledge. And, and if he wants knowledge, he needs to come over to my worldview. Does that make sense at all? Any thoughts or questions? Anything? All right, uh, I'm going to scroll up. You turn pages back to, um, you know, I'm trying to 
think about it in my mind. That's a good place uh, to think about it. How to ask you, I'm mulling it over, because you keep saying no, can you really know? Uh, I didn't know mm -hmm. God, so I don't know anybody that knows God. And apart from God allowing you to know him. I mean, true. literally, yeah. my mom and dad raised me, they say, hey, you're, uh, you know, trust in Christ, trust in Christ. But it didn't happen until I was 30 years old. Sure. Sure. So something happened for me one day for me to all of a sudden believe. Mm -hmm. So what? And it wasn't because Scripture all of a sudden meant something more to me. All of a sudden, sure. I've read John three sixteen. I've right. heard it. I've done this. Right. I've read you know uh, all this, but it, I didn't trust in a promise. Yeah, I didn't trust in it. I didn't actually. All of a sudden, I couldn't. I wasn't even capable of it. Yeah, is my point. Yeah. Um, All of a sudden, I, it was I was it was capable. I mean, what happened there? Uh, uh, what happened? <laughs> well, the do you understand what I'm saying? Right? I, I think so. I'm here debating with an unbeliever, and sure. he's incapable. Yes. He's not even capable of knowing. So God, and apart from the power of the word, yep. seems to penetrate into your heart and soul. Yep. There's some kind of power that all of a sudden, literally. We, we can only use words, yep. but we can't describe it. A light turned on. So, so I was in darkness, and all of a sudden, yep. Scripture literally was like this. It just unraveled. Yes. And all of a sudden, I'm like, I understand. Yep. Why is it I all understand? Right. So this is... You understand uh, what I mean? I, 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 I think I, I do. Right? All right, give, give me... Give me, give me so I might be basic, but you keep saying, knowing out in the car, you okay. my car's up there... He won't know. He, he can't right. know. It's impossible for him to know. All right. For anybody to know. Quick, here's, here's, a, here's another fun, quick little theology lecture. All right. I'll throw out some terms for you that I think are very important that we use correctly. Um, and then I'll explain why I think these are important. Um, and I'm not going to try to defend any of them. But if you picture on your little men mental chalkboard here, because I don't know which one I want to write on here, if you picture, picture on your little mental chalkboard, over here we're going to have five columns. Okay, we're going to have, ah, let's go four columns. Four columns. Hyper-Calvinism, Calvinism, Arminianism, and what's called Pelagianism. Okay, these are your four columns. All right. So here, here's the tension we're wrestling with. The Bible teaches two truths that are very difficult for me to hold together in my mind. First, that God is sovereign over all things. God is in control. The second is that I'm responsible. Okay, God holds me responsible. We saw this in Romans 9, right? right. That verse, uh, how, how can God hold us responsible for who can resist his will? That's the, that's the tension, right? God is sovereign. Man is still held responsible. And that's a difficult tension to resolve. So throughout church history, different people have proposed different solutions to that. The, the hyper-Calvinist, Calvinist side has emphasized a little bit more, or to a greater degree, hyper-Calvinism, God's sovereignty. The Arminian and Pelagian sides have emphasized man's responsibility and, and often then man's free will. Okay. And I don't want to get too deeply into it, but, but here's, the, here, here's the important point. How do I know when a person is a hyper-Calvinist? Right? So a Calvinist says... God is sovereign. God ordains all things. Um, how do I know when someone has become a hyper-Calvinist? Because that word gets thrown out. You know, it, this, this is a very touchy subject for some people. 
right? And you start talking about Calvinism, and, and you know, you, if you say that God elects who will be saved, they'll say you're a hyper-Calvinist. When, when God imposes his will upon you, that's how I run into people who believe in hyper-Calvinism. Their, their opposite view is, well, God doesn't impose his will onto somebody for you to believe, right? That's what I, that's what my argument that's, always seems to run up to. And I'm like, I'm not saying I'm hyper-Calvinist. Yeah. I'm not saying God imposes his will upon you. But he certainly has the option right to choose, right? I'll, I'll, offer, I'll offer this definition because I think it's helpful. A hyper-Calvinist is somebody who takes what the Bible says about God's sovereignty and uses it to deny what the Bible says about man's responsibility. Right? Because Scripture teaches both. Scripture teaches I am responsible to do certain things. Uh, how many people in the world are commanded to repent and believe the gospel? And the answer is... All of them. Um, if I were to say, God elects who he will, uh, God elects uh, whoever he wants to, and so we can all just live however we want, no one needs to repent and believe, because at the end, God will just sort out his elect. And it doesn't matter whether you've even believed or not. That's a form of hyper-Calvinism. It's like a libertine form of hyper-Calvinism, right? You see, I'm using what God has said about his sovereignty, and I'm using it to deny man's responsibility. Here's a far more common form. Uh, uh, and this is, a, this is a touchy issue, but some will say, if you make a profession of faith, you are saved. It doesn't matter what you do from that point on. So you'll see people make a profession of faith, and, and, you, and they nev there's no change in their life whatsoever at all. They, they never come to church. They continue you know, living in immorality. They continue this. And they never, they never make a, 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 any change whatsoever in their life. But they believe they're going to heaven because they made a profession of faith. Because God keeps those who he's chosen. Okay? That is a form of hyper-Calvinism. Does that make sense? It, it is, it's taking what God says about his sovereignty and keeping us in salvation and using it to deny our responsibility to persevere in the faith. Right? But here's another form, and this is the most common one. Hyper-Calvinism is, is most commonly associated with um, a refusal to share the gospel with people. Right? How do you know you're hyper-Calvinist? Well, you don't believe in witnessing. Okay? And, 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 and when I ask my, when I would ask my students when I taught college, what's a hyper-Calvinist? Almost always, that was the definition I got. A hyper-Calvinist doesn't believe in witnessing. They're right. That's not a big enough definition, but they're right about that one application. Why does the hyper-Calvinist not believe in witnessing? What, what is it about God's sovereignty and man's responsibility that's, that's being put in opposition there? They believe what? It's predetermined. If it's predetermined who's going to get saved, I don't need to witness. Okay? <coughs> now, do I have an explanation for how God's sovereignty and man's responsibility fit together for you? It's going to, it's going to fit? No, I don't. Okay? We're going to talk about the Trinity shortly. I don't have an explanation for that either. <laughs> okay? And, 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 and I'm going to argue, if I could explain all these things, I, I'd be God, Christianity couldn't be true. If I could explain all of these things, God would... We talk about the creator-creature distinction, that would be eliminated. If God was comprehensible, 
in the sense that I could comprehend utterly everything about God, God wouldn't be who the Bible says he is. Okay? So I don't have an answer for how, how my prayer and God's will fit together. Right? I don't have an answer for how my sharing the how how someone sharing the gospel with my dad when he was was in his late twenties um, led to his believing the gospel. But the reality is, God ordains the means as well as the ends, right? And and so you ask, how does this happen? And and. What scripture teaches is it happens by the word and the spirit. But I am the means for the delivery of the word. Um, and so, and this gets back to what we talked about, apologetics and, and evangelism right at the opening of class, that it is not my responsibility to convert. It is not my responsibility to persuade. It is my responsibility to faithfully set forth the claims of the word on that person's life. His getting it in a biblical sense, his knowing it in a biblical sense, is the work of the Spirit. And that's why my witness is accompanied by prayer. Because I recognize it's not my fancy arguments that bring anyone into heaven. Um, I think I have a responsibility to have good arguments. Just like the pastor has a responsibility to set... Have people gotten saved through mishandling of Scripture? And the answer is, yeah. Have people been, you know, Paul talks about this in Philippians, right? There were opponents of Paul, the guys who were jealous of Paul's ministry, who were happy that Paul was in prison. Why? Why were they happy that Paul was in prison? So they could go out and make their ministries bigger. And what does Paul say about that? I rejoice that Christ is preached. Okay? Now, uh, he, he says, they, he doesn't let them off the hook. He says they've got bad motives, but he rejoices that Christ is preached. So people have been saved through mishandling of, of Scripture. People have been saved through bad arguments. Does that justify mishandling of Scripture and bad arguments? No, by no means. You know, as Paul would say, God forbid, right? Make an oito. Um... So I am responsible to do what God has, has tasked me to do. But the results are in the Spirit's hands. Uh, Van Til was asked one time, you know, Van Til, you've got this, this great system of apologetics, but will it work? And his answer was, if the Holy Spirit is pleased, you know, if, if the Holy Spirit is pleased to work, it will work. But it isn't the system. It isn't the argument. So you, you ask me what happened. The answer that what happened is regeneration. That, that enables me to understand, comprehend, and believe the gospel. Um, but, but asking further, well, what is that? Um, we get into problems when we try to articulate specifically what a miracle is. <laughs> and that's, and that's a, re regeneration is a miracle. It is a it is a bringing of uh, bringing life to the dead, um, and the mechanics of that I can't explain. But but what you're describing is the work of regeneration. That's the spirit's work. That is that in the ballpark of what you were asking about. Well, I mean we're we're talking about knowing. Right. I'm saying we already know he doesn't know. He can't. He doesn't know. Sure. 
You can't know. Right. It's, it's literally impossible to know. Right. It's just like being pure to the law. It's impossible. Right. It's impossible. can't uphold the law. Right. doesn't mean the law is unholy. It's just something impossible to keep. Sure. Right? Um, but, but what I'm going to say is, on a Christian worldview, there's things I can know. Right? And I can know God. I don't know, again, I don't know God exhaustively. I don't know God comprehensively. But I know God. God has revealed himself. Um, but the knowing of God that's important, biblically, is, is that relationship sort of knowing. Right? It's, it, 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 and that's what is caused by regeneration. I, again, I don't want the unbeliever to walk away from my argument going, okay, you know what, intellectually I see that. I buy, what he, I buy what you're saying. Uh, I want him to repent. And that's, that is the Spirit's work. Yeah. yeah. I mean, in an argument we're talking about with an unbeliever, we're in a discussion sure. with an unbeliever, yeah. <laughs> the idea is you're not creating a Pharisee. That's not what we're right. trying to create. Right. That you are, we, we, and then we're not, the idea is not to beat him down to the point of, okay, you're right, okay, I'm wrong, okay. Right. Well, but, but there, part of what part of what I think is so compelling about this approach, uh, the the beating him down is is not along the lines of, you know, uh, certainly not physically, but but even it's not an emotional beat down, um, with any sort of malice on my part. But what spurs us to repentance. Is a is a sort of brokenness, right? A sort of, um, you know, you talk about law and morality. Yes. There has to be a point coming to conversion that the unbeliever goes, "I have nothing to contribute here." Uh, I I um, told my students before. The, the two offensive, the most offensive things about the gospel is that, is that the gospel demands that the unbeliever accepts that God doesn't accept you and you can't do anything about that. Now that, that's offensive. I'm saying the same thing is true intellectually. That, that God doesn't accept all your rationalities, Mr. Unbeliever. And, and I'm going to show you how bankrupt you are intellectually. Just, and, and, and again, I may never have to do this with some unbelievers, right? There are going to be some unbelievers that their problems aren't of an intellectual sort. Their problems are merely their rebellion, their moral antagonism toward God. But for those who think that they can escape from God by their rationality, what I want to do is bankrupt them intellectually the same way we have to bankrupt the unbeliever morally so that he can repent and come to God. So, good, good questions. We, we, we've got to keep moving through here. Um, so if you spin back to page 12. Page 12. So we, we're in a bleak uh, situation here, right? It, 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 you know, if you picture us from the perspective of unbelievers, um, we have made ourselves autonomous. And, and we're going to talk about all that that means, right? I have obliterated the creator-creature distinction. Uh, my mind is the final authority for truth and rationality. But that leaves me in a, in a, in a mess. And we're going to, again, we'll talk about why that leaves me in a mess. What I need to get out of that mess 
is an authoritative word from God. Right? That, that if I can find that the creator of the universe has said something that's true, that gives me a foundation point to start thinking on. Okay? So, the Bible is God's authoritative word. Point three there on page 12. I say, God's existence is the basic presupposition of the Christian faith, but the God who is presumed to exist is not blank. In other words, we don't believe in just a bare theism. It's not God in general. Uh, God not only exists, but he has spoken. I have a paper on what we're going to talk about next uh, on the canon of scripture. Uh, again, if you're interested in it, uh, that's, that's one. I may print that out and put that in your hands because I think that's a, a very important topic. We'll talk about that some more. So can we set up an authority by which we can test God's word? The problem with such a test is that whatever test we adopt becomes more authoritative than the word itself. We've talked about this a little bit already, right? Much, must scripture first be proved to be rational or historical or poetic or moral or scientific before we accept it as God's word? If so, can we ask the unbeliever after he accepts our evidence to then discard rationality, historicity, aesthetic worthiness, or morality as his ultimate standard of proof? Such a procedure seems at best disingenuous. All right, this is the section I want to get to. Perhaps the very best biblical example of the importance of the final authority of Scripture is the narration of the fall in Genesis 3. Van Til draws out the relevant epistemological implications. Big, long quote. We'll work our way through it. If I mention Van Til's not the easiest guy in the world to read, we'll work our way through it. All right? From these considerations, it ought to be evident that one cannot take the possibility of neutrality for granted. To be philosophically fair, the, an the anti-theist is bound first of all to establish this possibility, in other words the possibility of neutrality, critically before he proceeds to build on it. If there is an absolute God, neutrality is out of the question. Why? Think about this. If, if, if there is an absolute God, neutrality is out of the question. Why? What's the word or key word? Because God is the... What? He's a creator, but wait, what's our, our Van Tillian hair care product word? He's the all conditioner, right? If an absolute God exists, neutrality is not possible, right? If I say, you know, my car's in the parking lot, and that could be true whether or not God exists, I've already taken a position against the kind of God of the Bible existing. Does that make sense? That kind of God can't maybe exist. And as soon as I declare neutrality toward that kind of God, I've declared opposition to that kind of God. Right. Um, because in that case, every creature is derived from God and is therefore directly responsible to him. It follows then that the attempt to be neutral is part of the attempt to be anti-theistic. Right. So we're not going to go to the unbeliever and say, hey, let's just be unbiased here. Right? Unbiased neutrality is anti-theism. For this reason, we have constantly used the term anti-theistic instead of non-theistic. To be non-theistic is to be anti-theistic. The narrative of the fall of man may illustrate this point. Adam and Eve were true theists at the first. That's an important point. Just, just um, in terms of dealing with people, the history of mankind... 
Um, theism is the default setting, right? Atheism or anti-theism. Um, other religions are corruptions of the original position of man. Um, and so we cannot say that the neutral seeker is really neutral. In order to get to neutrality, what did he first have to do? He had to reject the Christian God. Okay? So, Adam and Eve were true theists at the first. They took God's interpretation of themselves and of the animals for granted as the true interpretation. This is important. All right. Let me illustrate this. Um, I'm not, a, I'm, not a, uh, I'm not big into creation science. In other words, I haven't put a lot of study into creation science. I do more from the apologetics from the philosophy point of view you can pick that up, and less from the, the creation point of view. Um, have you guys had Dr. McCabe in to do any creation? He, Dr. McCabe knows creation. Okay. It's, it's, and he knows Hebrew, <laughs> uh, unlike me. Um, So I don't want to uh, put all my, my eggs in this particular basket, but one argument that I find compelling when we're dealing with creation-evolution debates is the appearance of age, right? So, for instance, um, God created everything. And let's say Adam's in the garden, and Adam picks up a rock in the garden, and Adam happens to have um, uh, scientific dating equipment with him. And, he, and he, runs a, he runs a test on this rock. And Adam says to God, God, uh, based on the breakdown of carbon in this rock, this rock seems to be two billion years old. And, and God tells Adam, yes, Adam, but I created that on Tuesday. Now Adam's faced with a choice, right? He's either going to believe God's interpretation of all things because God said so, or he's going to set his own mind up as the standard. And what, what Dan Till says here is, originally in the garden, what did Adam and Eve always do? They believed God, right? They walked around in the garden, and whatever God said, they took to be true. And why is that the most rational position to take? Because he's the all-conditioner. In other words, when, when God tells Adam, um, you know, th this is this way, it's totally rational to believe that because that thing is that way because God said it was that way. In other words, God's interpretation of things is the original interpretation of it. It is the correct. It must be because it is what it is. Its existence is God's interpretation of it. Okay? And so, in the garden, Adam and Eve believed what God said because God said it. Then came the tempter. Right? He presented to Eve another, that is, an anti-theistic theory of reality, and asked her to be the judge as to which was the more reasonable for her to accept. And the acceptance of this position of judge constituted the fall of man. That acceptance put the mind of man on an equality with the mind of God. That acceptance also put the mind of the devil on an equality with God. I need to keep reading because I'm going to say what he is about to say. Before Eve could listen to the tempter, 
She had to take for granted that the devil was perhaps a person who knew as much about reality as God knew about it. Right? Before Eve could listen to the tempter, she had to take for granted that she herself might be such an one as to make it reasonable for her to make a final decision between claims and counterclaims that involve the entire future of her existence. That is, Eve was obligated... This gets fun with language here. Here's your vocab task. That is, Eve was obligated to postulate an ultimate epistemological pluralism and contingency. Would you like that in English? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Let me translate that in English. <laughs> If God is who God says he is, when God says, don't eat that fruit for you will die, that's true because God said so. Right? For Eve to even consider eating the fruit, she had to make the switch from believing that God uh, is justified in saying whatever he says because he's God to saying God's voice is an interesting option. Now Satan is also saying something. Do you see how that has destroyed the creator-creature distinction? God is now on par with, with his creatures as, an, as another interesting interpretation. And, and so the, this wonderful sentence here, Eve was obligated to postulate an ultimate epistemological pluralism and contingency before she could even proceed to consider the proposition made to her by the devil, means that there can't just be one interpretation. Okay? In epistemological pluralism, there are many truths. Right? Uh, you see signs about that up all over this building here. Right? There's many truths. Um, you can have your truth, I can have my truth. And, and, and so Eve had to uh, open the possibility that maybe God isn't right. As soon as that's... You see how that's neutral? You see what Eve is trying to do. Okay, so I'm going to, you know, if I'm going to take the role of Satan here. Satan comes to Eve and says, Eve, consider the fruit. And Eve says, God has said. And that settles the question. Right? And Satan says, don't be so hasty, Eve. You need to consider all the sides on this. And do you see how as soon as Eve gives in to that, she has given up that God is who he says even if Eve, okay, here's, and here's the, the, what, what clinches this. Even if Eve were to evaluate the evidence and choose the side of God, she's already given up that God is right because God said so. She's, she's now agreed with God for some other reason. And that other reason is now the authority on which God's authority is built. And that's a problem. Does this make sense? Does that illustration help? I, I find the, this creation fall illustration very, very helpful for understanding what we're talking about with God as the ultimate interpreter, the all-conditioner. That once we understand that everything is what it is because God has said so, we understand the dire consequences of abandoning God's interpretation or making God's interpretation one possibility. What about Adam? Why was he passive? That, 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 it's a good question, but that has nothing to do with the epistemology of the law. That's a good uh, biblical manhood class question. Um, and I, I think it deserves an answer there. Um, no, it, it, is a good, it is a good question, but it would take us a bit off, 
off what we're doing here. Let's finish the quote here. Um, or otherwise expressed, Steve Van himself realized he wasn't speaking English anymore, he was compelled to assume equal ultimacy of the minds of God, of the devil, and of herself, and this surely excludes the exclusive ultimacy of God, which is what we've been arguing must be true. Therefore, this was a denial of God's absoluteness epistemologically. Thus, neutrality was based on negation. Neutrality is negation. Okay? And that's given a robust Christianity. Neutrality is negation. I've heard it said this. Okay, here's another, another way of illustrating this. Um, I, had a, I had a student of mine. I think he stole this from um, some popular apologist. I think I know who it is, but I'm not sure, so I'm not going to say, particularly since I'm being recorded. Um, <laughs> the, the argument goes something like this. Mr. Unbeliever, uh, have you examined the whole universe? Uh, you know, they, they, he, he doesn't believe that God exists. And, and, uh, and so you say, well, have you examined the whole universe to see that God, um, if God exists? And the unbeliever says, well, no, obviously I haven't done that. And, and, and the, the, the gist of the whole thing is, well, maybe God exists in the portion of the universe that you haven't examined. What's the problem with that argument? What part exactly, because God is the all-conditioner. What part of the universe can the Christian God not be found in? Do you, you see, if, if you go to the unbeliever and you say, well, maybe God exists in the part you haven't looked at, as soon as you say that, what you're trying to prove is something other than the Christian God. Does that make sense? God is the all-conditioner. So he can't be found in the, in the truths you haven't looked at yet. It can't be that you're good as far as you've gone, but you just need to add this. Your problem, Mr. Unbeliever, is that by excluding God at the outset, and your exclusion may take the form of neutrality, but it's exclusion nonetheless, your exclusion of God at the outset sets you on the wrong path entirely. Every, every conclusion you come to from that point on is misguided, you know, and Bentil and uses, uses the, the uh, picture of a power tool, a power saw, and it may be a really great power saw, but if, if, if the carpenter's kid has come in when he wasn't looking and adjusted the cut on the saw uh, to a different angle, it may really efficiently cut through all the boards, but they're all going to be off, right? And the unbeliever may be really sharp. He may be Einstein but every one of his cuts is just going to be a little off because, because from the outset, he's misaligned in not, not acknowledging that God is who God claims to be. So we see in this next section that on the basis of these observations, we can address the question of the proper relationship of reason and faith. This is very popular today. You'll, you'll see people say, uh, how, many, how many of you are familiar with um, uh, Richard Dawkins? Anyone heard of Richard Dawkins, uh, yeah. uh, biologist or uh, evolutionist um, from Cambridge, Oxford, Cambridge? You don't want to get those wrong. They have this kind of real intense rivalry. But he's from one or the other. Um, uh, he and uh, uh, trying to remember some of these other names. There's been a 
a burgeoning market for atheistic books, right? So there's a book called God is Not Great. Um, uh, Dawkins' book is called The God Delusion. Um, and these have become, you know, Amazon top seller kind of books, not like niche market. I mean, like really incredibly popular books. Um, and and the, the what drives a lot of this atheism is the idea that we need to be reason, you know, rational, scientific. We are all about reason. You're about faith. Reason gives us real conclusions about life. Faith gives us nothing. Faith hasn't taught us anything true. So what's the relationship between reason and faith? Um, some would say, and I have here, uh, reason is the basis of faith. Okay. So uh, this position asserts that we must believe only what is rational. Rationality precedes and determines all thoughts. So, so here's the perspective both from a believing and unbelieving point of view. Um, the unbeliever who says rationality is the basis of faith would say, I would believe in Christianity if someone could show me that it's rational. Okay. Just tip off really quickly the problem with that. Uh, that's like saying, um, let's say I'm a pure naturalist. I believe that all that exists is matter, motion, chance. Matter, motion, time, and chance. Right? Um, pure naturalist. Nature is all that is. And I say, I would believe in a, in a supernatural miracle if you prove it to me and show me how it happens. So we talked about miracles and, and, and how it's difficult to articulate exactly what happens there. But the naturalist says, I've got an open mind. Show me exactly how it happened and I believe it. What's the problem with that? If you show him exactly how it happened on his worldview, is it supernatural anymore? No, it isn't. In other words, <coughs> the only thing that's acceptable on the naturalist worldview are natural events. Right? The unbeliever who is a rationalist, who says, if you show me Christianity's rational, I would believe it. What he's looking to do is believe a, a naturalized Christianity. A de-supernaturalized Christianity. Right? A rationalized Christianity. In which... So... So someone with that foundation, faith must be built on reason. Um, can they believe in the Trinity? Ultimately, the answer is no. Human logic can't make sense of that, so it must not be true. Okay. So, so that's a problem. Second, I, I've got to hurry here. Reason and faith belong to different realms. This is very popular. We use reason when we're in the science lab or when we're in the office. We use faith when we're in our personal lives and in, and in church. Um, this is, I would argue, probably the dominant idea of our society. Most people are not antagonistic to faith. They just, they just insist that, you know, hey, faith needs to stay in its little box, right? Uh, if you want a really, really good set of books that deal with this issue and its implications for culture, a, an author by the name of David Wells has written a book called No Place for Truth. Uh, he's got a follow-up book called God in the Wasteland. Uh, he's got two other books that follow up with that, but just start with those. Those will take you a while. But that they belong to different realms. Um, all right, so uh, th this is this goes back to Kant. I'm not going to outline Kant right here, but 
Uh, Kant's desire was to save science while making room for faith. Faith belongs to the things in themselves, the noumenal realm, which we never experience um, directly. Our everyday experience uh, is the domain of the sciences. I'm not going to get into that deeply right now. We'll talk about that later. Finally, faith is the basis for reason. This position recognizes that all reason necessitates an ultimate faith commitment. All reason. The unbelievers included. Okay? What we're going to see is that the unbeliever makes a, a, a faith commitment at the outset of his thinking that, that tries to get his rationality going. In essence, he has an irrationality that is the foundation for his rationality. Right? He, he believes certain things without evidence. Um, things like the laws of logic that he can't prove are true. Laws of logic don't, they're not the sorts of things that you can prove. He assumes certain things uh, to get his rationality going. But, but it's a faith commitment that, that enables his, re his reason. Uh, one must have some sort of un underlying conviction about the sort of things that are rational in order to get rationality going. Success in prediction merely sidesteps the issue because success itself is a nebulous term it must be defined. Everybody's reason is an ultimate faith commitment. People reason in circles. Okay? That does not mean that all reasoning is therefore equally valid or invalid or that there could be no valid discussion. Um, here's the, here's the, uh, the upshot of all that. The unbeliever has certain foundational principles that he considers, uh, he may not realize, but, but need to be exposed as the basis for why he thinks he can reason at all. Those foundations for the unbeliever do not hold. They will not hold. Once, once you shift in God's universe from God's interpretation being taken as true because of God's to any other foundation, you lose footing and you can't make sense of anything. Once, once God is not the final interpreter of all things and man becomes the final interpreter of all things, nothing makes sense. Um, and, and man may try to arbitrarily impose some sort of meaning or rationality on things, but it will be arbitrary. And it needs to be pointed out that he has no basis for the, that rationality given his assumptions about who God is or who God isn't. Um, and that's what we're going to do. So in our next lesson, we'll start talking about the traditional theistic proofs, um, the, the sort of arguments that have been offered for the existence of God. And, and I'll, I'll, I'll show why I, where I think they're good, but where I think they're built on um, trying to cater to the unbeliever's autonomy, trying to um, make God just another voice, another explanation, a possibility. Uh, and, and so I'll show where I think they go wrong and, and, and why we shouldn't use them in that way. And then we'll, uh, we'll move from there in, in a few weeks past that to talking about exactly how I think we should go about designing it. All right? Thank you again.